Hi, and welcome to another interview with Yosis HQ. I'm Matt Venn, and with me I've got Andrew Zonenberg. So let's meet him now. Um, Hello. So, Andrew, um, could you, I'm just asking everybody this, could you just tell us your preferred pronouns? Ah, uh, he and him. Okay. And from your Twitter bio, it looks like you're into a ton of different stuff, like... <laughs> infosec reverse engineering high-speed digital like if you could narrow it down to like just a couple of things what would be your your top few uh all of the above <laughs> <laughs> i mean really um, a lot of my interests kind of tie together and overlap uh i started getting into test equipment because i wanted to debug uh, my open hardware networking projects uh, I started designing probes because all of the commercial active differential probes were too expensive. I started writing a scope client, which the back end of that is now the back end of, lib, of uh, GLScope client. The So LibScope, how LibScope protocols, the UI has been totally rewritten. But uh, back in the day, scope client was the user interface for a JTAG-based logic analyzer that ran on Spartan 6 FPGAs during my thesis because Xilinx wouldn't give me chip scope for free and I was on a grad student's budget. So uh, one thing led to another and here I am. But I mean, really, yeah, all the all these projects kind of tie into each other. You know, I'm using the probes with GeoScope client to debug hardware projects and it, it, it's all just one big mesh of dependencies. <laughs> Where did your interest in hardware security come from? Was that like the beginning or was it come from before? Um, so I'd been interested in security in general for a while. I had started to get, I was actually, so backing way up to uh, when I was around nine or 10, I started out tinkering in uh, C. Um, I found a C++ book on my dad's desk uh, the summer before I turned 11 and started working my way through that. So I was software for a little while. Then shortly after that, I picked up a bunch of, I think, uh, Forrest Mims books from Radio Shack and started working my way through those building circuits back when, well, back when Radio Shack was a thing, but also back when they actually sold hardware components. And uh, so I started tinkering more on that, you know, building little op-amp circuits on a breadboard and stuff like that. And I quickly reached the limitations of what I could do with stuff at Radio Shack and also... So I was limited in budget being a, I think probably about a 13 year old at the time with no job and no allowance or anything. So just, you know, whatever I could convince my dad to buy me from Radio Shack whenever we were in that area, uh, which, which was limited. Uh, also, obviously I was limited by the component inventory at Radio Shack uh, back in the Did early 2000s. Did you like 2000s. Um, have a, um, uh, like have the catalog and kind of go through the catalog and circle the things you wanted most? Uh, no, I would usually, I was going through the books and I would just go into Radio Shack and start picking stuff off the shelves and hopefully I could find what I was looking for. Several projects got canceled because I just couldn't find the parts. I didn't know oh, about damn. DigiKey or anything back then. Uh, PCB fab was just not affordable for Too the average person yeah. back then. You know, this, this is probably 10 years before Oshpark was a thing. So, uh, yeah, I was pretty limited. Um, I had, you know, some of the perf boards uh, that I would play with and i was actually wire wrapping because i didn't have a soldering iron at the time um i well, started yeah i mean yeah it seems like uh, wire wrapping is a bit of a lost art but it, you know the first i still have a wire wrapping way, tool so i don't use yeah. it much anymore but i still have it i keep it around just in case i need it for something <laughs> 
Uh, so then, um, more recently, um, you kind of moved from wrapping wires by hand to um, writing wires using, like, <laughs> doing some RTL work and ASIC experience. Um, I know that you can't say much about that, but one of the questions we had on Twitter was like, what, in your opinion, what's the big difference between FPGA and ASIC development? Um, so really the big difference is just the scale of testing and prototyping with FPGA stuff. You can actually do full scale testing of everything and deploy it as is and, uh, you know, if you have problems, okay, you go write some new code and you ship a new binary, problem solved. With ASIC, on the other hand, very often full-scale testing of the whole system in uh, real-time or near real-time is just not possible. Uh, the best you can usually get is FPGA emulation, and uh, bigger systems just won't fit in even a fairly large FPGA unless you go to Cadence or Synopsys or one of those other big players and buy some... Uh, giant pile of uh, FPGAs with some custom software that'll partition your designs between these multiple FPGAs and so on. Uh, and even then, you're going to be running it probably, I don't know, one-tenth real-time. And so full real-time testing is just not a thing. You have to do a lot more simulation, uh, potentially multi-day or multi-week simulation. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I've, I've only worked on one project this sort, and it was a couple of years ago. So uh Primarily, so before, FPGA before stuff. you before you got on that, were you working with FPGAs? Like, did you get the experience to do an ASIC with FPGAs first? Uh, yeah, I've, I've I've been doing FPGAs going back to uh, actually predating my thesis. Uh, I think my first, I'd, so I was probably my second year of college. I was working on an operating system called Picnics for Pic 32s uh, with uh, uh, my roommate. As you can tell from the name, it was a Unix-like platform. Uh, didn't even really have any privilege separation or anything like that. We were just trying to get basic POSIX -E APIs to make writing firmware simpler. And we quickly ran at the limitations of, well, number one, I think 32 or 128K of RAM. And number two, just limitations on available uh, resources, no MMU, fixed memory mapping, no protect, there was protection between user space and supervisor mode, but nothing beyond there. So I started looking around, I couldn't find any MIPS CPUs with a full MMU and external memory map available. And so I started building one. I got, a, I think as a little Spartan 3A uh, that I, I think at the time I was uh, basement etching boards in the electronics club at RPI. Uh, so uh, started playing around with, uh, these were, you know, TQFP, like uh, Spartan 3A, 50, 100K gates. Uh, my first actual real FPGA project was a group on campus had asked me to go design a, a uh, for some robotics projects, they asked me to design a servo motor controller that would do 32 channels of servo PWM uh, off of a UART, and we couldn't find any microcontroller that had 32 PWM channels, so I had to go build one. Classic FPGA application. Yeah, so I did that in uh, it's a Spartan 3A on an Express PCB board. Again, this predated Batch Fab really being a thing. So it is, I think, two mm -hmm. layers Express PCB, no DRC. I had to do bodges in the board because I, I missed a net in the schematic that the layout didn't have, and there was no way to tell that automatically. So, yeah, the tools were pretty limited at the time. I mean, you know, I'm sure 
in that same year if you wanted to go buy Altium or whatever, it would have been fine. But the tools available to the little guys were not really a thing. Um, I I think I may have discovered KiCad at that point, but uh, not Kai having Kai access. Is KiCad your go-to package at the moment? Uh, yeah, I've, I've been using it for quite a few years now. I, I started as mm-hmm. soon as I left ExpressPCB. I went to it, and I haven't gone back. Uh, mm-hmm. Back in version 4, I actually did a lot of development work on uh, BlindVIA. All, all the BlindVIA, uh, MicroVIA drill support uh, is probably still my code because what was there was completely broken, and I had to redo it. <laughs> I think um, one of the first times I kind of became aware of the work that you're doing was finding your um, PCB checklist. Mm-hmm. You got like this Git re- Git repository. I'll link it in the video description. But that's so helpful to catch um, the kind of the always the things that gets you when you're designing a PCB. Just have to go through that list and take off. Oh all yeah, the boxes. that that checklist has saved me personally probably tens of thousands of dollars of respins and scrapped components and untold hundreds of hours of rework. <laughs> yeah. So um, I know that, um, so w- when we were speaking earlier about the kind of um, topics we're going to talk about in the interview, one of the, um, one of the, th- the things that you said was that you're interested in, in advancing the state of the art in open hardware and software on the high speed or high performance end of things. So, like, has that come from, like, what's what's your motivation there? Like, um, is it that you want to see more open source or open hardware projects succeed with high-speed stuff? Or do you, like, think that open source tooling would be improved? Like, wh- where's your motivation come from? There? So, it's a combination of everything. Um, I started getting into this, again, because of networking. I was getting fed up with what I could get from eBay, Cisco switching and uh, random routers thrown together out of whatever Linux PC I built off parts on Newegg and so on. So I wanted to be able to build something a little bit more performant. Uh, Switch chipsets are basically not a thing if you're not Cisco or Avago or, uh, or sorry, uh, Cisco or Arista or one of the other big players. You just, you either can't get them or you can't get data sheets. Uh, I mean, you got to pay an arm and a leg and sign away your firstborn son to even get them to show you the NDA. And, and just, um, good just luck to be clear, when you're, when you're talking about switches, you're talking about network switches, right? Correct. Like gigabit fiber yeah, well, or Well, cable so or... one gig, you can uh, microchip uh, after they acquired micro, uh, does have a small handful of really small, basic one gig Ethernet switches. We're talking four or five ports. I think they have one that's six or seven. So, you know, we're talking something on the scale like a net, net a Netgear GS108 or something like that. That is actually possible to build, as far as I know, with parts available from distributors in quantity one, no NDAs in the data sheets. But if you want to start building anything on the higher end, that's just not really a thing. Like, uh, one of my goals is to replace a bunch of the Cisco uh, Catalysts, uh, 24 one gig and... Uh, Sorry, 24 one gig copper and four one gig fiber uplink ports. And ideally, I would like to have 10 gig uplinks. And so I have a bunch of these switches that I'd really like to replace with something open hardware. And again, this was also partially motivated by security concerns because 
I can't afford to buy new Cisco switching on a one-person budget. And if I wanted to buy secondhand eBay switching like I've been doing, things are generally end of life or very close to it by the time they even show up in my lab. And I'm not thrilled about not getting security patches for any of my stuff. And really, my needs in software are not that complicated. I'm not doing complex multicast setups or anything. I just want lots of ports, lots of bandwidth, and basic VLANs and trunking. And so and to be designing... Exactly. And so designing a switch with that feature set is not that difficult, but it does require some high performance debug capabilities. And so, so okay, so that was the next of, thing I was going to ask is like, where are the challenges in building a, a high speed switch like that? The board I've layouts, actually, the components? Uh, it's, it's a bit of everything. The RTL is actually comparatively easy if you're reasonably competent with FPGA stuff. The board design is more complex just because you've got such a large board. We're talking something, you know, the full 19-inch rack enclosure in size. Um, then you've got at least one gigabit signals reaching fairly long distances. So you need to pay attention to loss and jitter and so on. And I wanted to make sure that this was going to work the first time because we're talking a large expensive board with a several hundred dollar FPGA on it. And uh, as a one-man shop, there is not going to be a respin of this board. I'm going to make however many I need. I'm going to populate at least one of them to start. And if it doesn't work, okay, I only wasted one board worth of parts, but the project's over. And if it does work, then I'll populate a few more. But that's really a lot of this stuff was motivated by trying to make sure that I was going to get things right the first time and that if there was a problem that I would be able to repair and rework it. Okay. So, um, so you, so this is a really great example then. So you, you've got something that's going to be complicated to make because, um, because of the constraints that you just said, and you want to be able to do it in one time, uh, get it right first time, or if something goes wrong, then have the ability to debug it. So let's start with the first part of that. How do you um, make sure that it works first time? Simulation? So obviously the PCB checklist is a big thing. And yeah, simulation is another one as far as both the... RTL design with something this complicated, the RTL design needs to be tested either on dev boards or simulation or a combination. Tested enough that you're at least confident, number one, your design will fit in the FPGA. So in this case, for example, I'm looking at using a Kintex 7, the 160K cell in the FFG 676 package. This was I wanted to stick with Stylinx because that's what I have a lot of experience with. And this is literally the only choice in components because uh, this is about a $300 part. Anything smaller definitely won't fit. And anything bigger starts to get into four-digit price tags, either the, uh, well, so the next Kintex 7 up doesn't work with a free tool chain and compatibility with the free tooling was a critical design requirement, both so I don't have to shell out $3,000 on Vivado and being an open hardware project, I want to try and keep the barrier to entry low as far as people working on it themselves. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to limit myself to parts that were available in free Vivado. And so if I needed more capacity, that means jumping to UltraScale, which again is low four-digit price tags, completely not footprint compatible, different core voltages that meet a whole board respin. And so before I make this board, I have to be absolutely certain that I can fit everything I need in the 7K160. And if it doesn't mm -hmm. fit, either cancel the project or cut features or something because the again it'd be it'd be a complete board redesign and probably doubling in system costs to use a larger fpga um so, so a lot of time there use, um, i know that you use um a 
program called Sonnet to do some PCB simulation? Is that something yeah. that you would use to help you with this? Um, oh, absolutely. I would use that for all of my high-speed simulations. Uh, it's a great tool that is unfortunately not free. It's actually quite expensive. Uh, they no longer publish pricing, but uh, they do have pricing available in uh, the Internet Archive. If you search their product suites page and go back to about mid-2018, 2019, I don't think the prices have changed since then. Um, well, we're talking but, killer dollars, though, aren't we? Oh, uh, as, as a minimum, yeah. Even their, their entry-level version, I think, at the time was like 4500 for the lowest-level paid version. They have a free light version that's essentially useless. Um, the version I'm using now is level three gold, which, uh, MSRP for that circa 2018 was on the order of 12, 13,000. And I'm looking at upgrading to pro, which is about double that as soon as I get budget, because even gold still limits you to three signal layers and two gigabytes of RAM. Um, right. I spent quite a while looking at the uh, available open source options for EM simulation, open EMS and so on. And... The impression I got from them was that they're great solvers that have essentially no user interface. If you're okay with doing all of your design in Python scripts and spitting out XY coordinates and feeding it to the simulator and then writing some code to visualize the results and analyze it, they're probably okay. I know some people who have done some fairly impressive work with them, but for somebody like me who just wants to get a project done, it's, it's, it's not really an option. I mean... I'm definitely looking forward to them maturing to the point that I can use them for this sort of work. I think if if somebody wants to put in the level of funding that Kike has been getting, you know, multiple full-time developers for several years, I think it's got potential. I mean, by the 2030s, there's a good chance that if we get that level of funding soon, that, again, OpenEMS or uh, I think uh, Elmer or some of the other tools in that uh, – class could potentially reach the level of maturity that they're useful for this sort of design by themselves. But as of right now, basically, I was actually trying to do real projects. I looked at what it would cost me in time and budget to convert OpenEMS into something I could use. I looked at the cost of a sonnet seat and it wasn't even close. So would you say that... Um... That that kind of stuff is like a requirement for doing high-speed design, or is it possible to build up an intuition and just be able to do a layout that you know is going to work? Uh, so it it depends a lot on exactly what you're doing and how tight your tolerances are. So in my case, for example, I was working on test equipment projects, probes, oscilloscope, things like that, and so. If you're trying to accurately represent a signal, fractions of a dB in loss matter. Very flat frequency response matters. For pure digital stuff, if you just want something to work and be readable, you can get away with a lot more. Um, that being said, there are definitely things that, like, for example, uh, connectors like an SMA where it's got a big center pin that's going to lower the impedance. You're going to have all that extra metal there coupling to your ground plane. And so generally you will have to remove some metal under there. And I usually kind of guesstimate that I want to start with about the size of the pin as the cutout, but I do usually have to do a parameter sweep. And again, it depends on the stack up. And uh, you can get an intuition for what roughly needs to be done. You can get close. Some of the closed form calculators like Saturn PCB and so on mm -hmm. um, are decent for things like just calculating, okay, you know, what width should my trace be for a 50 ohm trace? Um, as you start to get to things like certainly double digit gigabits when you've got 
either coax connectors or just just connectors in general are a pain because you, again you've got differences in traits with you know the width is going to be wrong for 50 ohms and you have to add either ground plane cutouts or move ground closer or further or something like that and unfortunately there is not any close form way to approximate this and you can uh, gut check that a cutout is required but trying to size it optimally is hard uh the alternative right. is really just to do 10 boards with 10 different size cutouts and yeah. see which one works best, you know, throw them on a V and A yeah. and experiment. And, uh, yeah, there, so, yeah, there that, comes a point at which that costs more than simulating. Yeah. That does take us. So, um, so maybe that takes us on to the next bit. So now you've got your boards, um, and you want to actually characterize them. So you need like a VNA, you need a scope, you need the wires, you need the probes and you need the software to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, we can talk about all of that stuff, really. So <laughs> I know that you've just—I um, know that you've just got a new addition to your lab in terms of on the scope side. Do you want to say something about that? Uh, yeah, that was a 16 gigahertz Lacroix SDA 816. Um, I had been watching the high end. Uh, I like Lacroix scopes; have been using them for years, and so I wanted to stick with them. Also, uh, Lacroix is kind of. On the at least on the upper end, certainly into the gigahertz bandwidth class, Lacroix is kind of the tier one platform for a gyroscope client right now. In part because I've it's been my daily driver for so long that that driver is optimized inside out and backwards. I've spent a ton of time tuning it. Uh, also, just Lacroix's Skippy stack is fairly efficient and it it handles things like multiple queued operations fairly well and things like that that a lot of uh for example the tech mso6 is a great scope if you're using it sitting at the front panel but their software stack does not handle multiple concurrent operations really at all it wants you to do one thing get a response back if you send a command while it's in the middle of something else it'll just choke and uh, um, potentially even uh, lock up for a couple of seconds and drop commands during that time frame. It's just a general pain to work with. So this is when you're driving a scope using like an interface from a computer. Yes. And so um, I have not used any high-end modern Keysight stuff, so I can't comment on that. Uh, also, Roden Schwartz. Um, Pico has a really nice SDK for talking to their scopes. Um, my main complaint there is that... Uh, it is a proprietary API, and each scope family has a different, almost, they're, they're fairly uh, orthogonal APIs in that the APIs for one scope are almost the same as the APIs for another, but they're not the same. So you do need to write different driver code to work with each of their device families and so on. Um, yeah. so, I guess it's uh, inevitable, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. on the other hand, in terms of waveforms per second, Pico blows away everything else I've used by probably close to an order of magnitude. Uh, I've got 1.52 gigabits a second of waveforms streaming off of uh, PicoScope 6000 series, and my LaCroix on a good day will get three or 400 megabits per second of waveform right. data. And uh, the next uh, best actually was the Tech MSO6, which was getting about 60, and then most other stuff is single digits to very low double digits that I've tested. And again, part of this is the gyroscope client drivers for these may not be the most optimized, but also there is massive differences in vendor skippy stacks as far as how efficient they are. And a lot of these scopes were not really designed with headless operation in mind from the start. And it was really, it was meant for 
uh, ATE operations where you're scripting configurations and then maybe grab one waveform for a pass-fail test. It was not meant for real-time streaming of waveforms and doing protocol decoding on a PC and so on. So a lot of these, just okay. nobody put in the effort to optimize their software for this use case. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we can, we've got like the scope in the middle. We can go um, either this way to the software side and talk about GL scope client or that way to how you actually connect it to the board and talk about the work that you've done with probes. Which one do you want to talk about first? Uh, no preference. I mean, both of them are interesting to our audience. Yeah, well, let's so. talk about the probes first then because we, we got these PCBs back. Let's say we didn't have access to Sonnet. Although it, one thing that we'll come back to um, probably is just talk talk a bit about your kind of community efforts and your community work mm -hmm. but let's just say that you didn't know any nice person that would help you out with running a simulation on sonnet um you've done like your 10 test ground cutouts you've got your pcb back now you want to actually start measuring it so what are the um what can you say about like your work with um the, the on the probe side of things because i've seen mm -hmm. you do like two separate ones like one that kind of classic one where you don't have a ground clip on the on the probe. You have like the ground return right next to it, and then the other one, which is actually like a, you solder it on to the PCB. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that before. So I've actually got a pretty wide uh, range of probes in development at various stages of maturity. So the uh, AKL PT ones. Just so just just bang up a little bit. The, the naming convention is all Antikerner Labs. P is for passive. T is for transmission line, and then just a model number within there. So for example, a differential probe or an active probe would be AKL AD something. Uh, so the PT one is. Uh, the handheld version of uh, the signal path did a video on it if you want to link it um, that was uh, a uh, pre-production kind of beta level unit i'm still working on fine-tuning the frequency response and uh, yeah as you mentioned that one does have a ground dealer right next to the tip it does actually have he didn't show it in the video um, but there is a second ground position about a centimeter up and kind of diagonally uh aft on the shaft of the probe but you can put a ground in that one will actually rotate in the socket so you can adjust spacing of the ground to the signal to probe test points at different distances from ground you do get some additional inductance so that is only good to a one to two gigahertz depending on which grounding mode you're using and so on but it gives you a lot more convenience and flexibility and so you can kind of trade between the two i, I also supply a longer flexible ground wire that you can use same way using normal alligator clip ground and again that's even mm -hmm. worse it's only good to a couple hundred megahertz but uh with transmission so, and you're selling probe, these out of your anti-kernel shop right i uh, saw a few of them online the other day so they're actually sold through elegant invention that's a friend of mine has a shopify okay. store set up and so she's kind of my distributor for these and they're all obviously open hardware i'm just selling assembled units to uh fund further research and development on future stuff uh Actually, I'm talking to somebody who's interested in doing some uh, paid development on Gelscope Client here and there. And so uh, I've got about 800 bucks in profit from sales of these probes so far that I'm probably going to try and uh, plow into that. And if that works out, you know, maybe I can have somebody put in a week every couple of months to paid development on it and see how that goes. So mm -hmm. Nice. So then the other one is like a, it looked like a flex PCB that yeah. you soldered so directly. So that's the, the AKL PT2. That is the first one that's actually available for sale right now. The PT1, I did a Kickstarter about uh, 
just about a year ago now, and uh, that was actually a mistake. The design was not nearly mature enough. Uh, it was about a two and a half gigahertz probe at the time. The latest prototypes are in excess of six, and I'm just trying to flatten out the frequency response more. So I will be offering assembled units for sale once I'm satisfied with their performance. And again, obviously, if somebody wants to pull the current design files off GitHub and make one, go for it, but just know it's going to get better. <laughs> Um, and are they reusable after you've soldered them? Can you re re like unsolder correct. them? It is designed to be reusable. Um, I actually have not worn one out from soldering yet. I've ha I have some in my lab that I've used quite a few times in various projects, and I haven't worn one out yet. Uh, I've destroyed one so far when I had uh, the tape that I had used to secure it slipped, and uh, the solder joints at the tip are not designed to provide any mechanical support whatsoever. The castellations at the tip are tiny, and so you need to tape the thing to the board first, and once you're sure it's not going to move, then you solder it. And then in the reverse, when you're taking it off the board, desolder it first, and then once it's completely free, then remove the tape. And so as long as you do that, they'll, they'll last. I mean, again, I, I couldn't put a number on it because I haven't broken one yet from actual use. I've only ever damaged them from putting excessive force Accidents. on them. How many times have you unsoldered one so far? Uh, I've got some that I've used 10 plus times. Uh, I mean, I've, I've just got a bin of them sitting in the lab. And so I couldn't tell you how many times mm -hmm. each one has been used. But yeah, okay. I, I've put, I know during testing and characterization, I've put, 10 plus load cycles on many of them and they they look new so cool yosis hq open source eda tools and related software development okay so um we've got another question from um dsp 8-bit on twitter and um, that's related and they're asking what's the cheapest bit of equipment for signal integrity and any recommendations for signal integrity beginners working with USB 3, DDR, DDR2 with FPGAs? So uh, the short answer is unfortunately there's not anything good. <laughs> um, generally, you're going to need lots of bandwidth and lots of sample rate, and that doesn't come cheap. Uh, I am working in the very long term on some open hardware instrumentation, which will be it's not going to be cheaper probably than the commercial alternatives. I mean, you'll get all the software packages free. You'll be able to write custom firmware for it and just have all the other advantages of open hardware. But uh, the A to D converter for some of these higher end scopes, I'm looking at one from analog devices that's 10 giga samples per second. So I'd use that for about a one gigahertz bandwidth scope or several of them interleaved for higher bandwidth. And the list price on DigiKey is about 3,500 US dollars for the A to D converter plus the FPGA, plus probably dual-channel DDR4 to keep up with the 120 gigabits per second of waveform data coming off of it. And you're not even talking about preamps or, like, signal conditioning? Oh, that, or that's, that's, like yeah, that. that's, that's not including any of the front-end or anything. That's just yeah, for the A to D yeah. converter. And so you'd be looking at easily five-plus thousand U.S. dollars in parts per channel of the scope. And so something... So maybe, like, a, um, a decent brand but second-hand and, like, four or five years old? What, like, what would um, be your recommendation for somebody who so did want to get into it? So four to five years is still a little bit on the new side. Okay. Uh, it, again, it, it depends on how fast you're going. Um, 
roughly speaking, there's kind of three classes of test equipment out there. There's the current generation stuff bought new from a dealer, fully supported, full warranty and everything. It's going to cost you an arm and a leg and honestly, probably not worth buying unless you actually need bleeding edge performance or extreme size, density, power efficiency, and so on really matters to you. Um, on the opposite extreme, there's what a lot of the uh, smaller hobbyists and so on are using, which is go on eBay, find whatever you can, and you know it's probably going to be 20 plus years old. Uh, there's some really affordable scopes out there that were lab queens back in the day, and we're talking things that are running Windows 2000 or XP, uh, you know, Pentium 2 with VGA output on the back, and you know ancient dinosaurs by modern PC standards, but the analog stuff still works. Um, I have a friend who got a, uh, and again, I'm, I'm speaking mostly about LaCroix, not because they're better than the alternatives, just what I'm most familiar with. So uh, don't take this as a recommendation of their products being better than the alternatives. Uh, that being said, they do make good stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, so okay. I have a friend who picked up uh, one of their uh, disk drive analyzers, the DDA 5000 series. Uh, she snagged it on eBay for, I want to say somewhere in the one to 2000 US dollar range for four channel, five gigahertz, 10 giga sample. And again, it was an ancient boat anchor running Windows 2000, but it still works and she uses it for signal integrity stuff. Yeah, nice. So yeah, you can get some really nice deals if you're willing to go all. The downside is this is probably a decade out of support and if it breaks good luck getting spare parts for it uh, and then kind Send of in it between to the signal this, path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah even that uh, i mean a lot of the things that are likely to break on these are you know some asic finally gave up the ghost and you know hasn't been made in 10 years the fab closed five years ago <laughs> uh so then kind of in between these you get to the class that i primarily use in my own lab which is what i'm going to call premium secondhand or manufacturer refurb, stuff like that. So these are scopes that are, for the most part, still in manufacturer support, but no longer being produced, or at least these are, say, retired sales demo units or uh, you know something customer traded in to get the next model up, something like that. Uh, so in my lab right now, I've got a Wave Runner 8000 series that, uh, well, with all the trade-ins and everything, I paid less than that, but the uh, asking price from uh, the manufacturer was about 20,000 US and MSRP was around 40. Roughly speaking, stuff in this class, you're looking at paying about half a list price. Um, right. Then uh, the other one I have is the SDA 816. That is actually an older model. Uh, it is out of support for the most part. Uh, it's a 2009 model year and I bought it like a month ago, to give you an idea. Um, that one cost me about 33000 and list price for that was somewhere in the 100000 to quarter million range uh, back in 2009. Um, so the reason I was willing to consider a model that old is because it's close enough to the current generation SDA 8ZIB series that LaCroix will upgrade it to the current model. It's it's not going to be cheap. It'll cost you about 40000 I'm hoping to get that done next year. But at that point, it will be a currently supported model, and I'll be able to get spare parts for it and so on. And so I'm planning on keeping this scope out into the 2030s. And so getting that seven-plus year extended support was kind of a critical requirement because you know, I spent more on this than my wife's car. So uh, we need to make sure <laughs> that this scope will outlive the car. <laughs> 
Um, okay, cool. So um, let's now um, go progress to the other side. So we're talking about the software. So you've got your solder on probes, they're going to your 30 grand oscilloscope and now you want to be doing some okay, yeah. signal so on work. the on the on the scope side so i have started some uh r&d projects that they've kind of been back burner for a while in part because they were useless without good probes and so at some point i may get back to it uh, so one thing that you can do to get fairly good high performance uh specifically eye patterns or like rising edge plots, something as long as it's a repetitive signal. And for signal integrity, luckily, that's usually the case. If you're not doing protocol decodes and you only care about the shape of the edges, you can get away with a much cheaper option, which is a sampling scope. And so I actually and, uh, built... Yeah, so um, on, the, on the topic of sampling scopes, Ted Yapo did a really fantastic Supercon yeah. talk. So if anyone's so, interested in finding out about sampling scopes, check that talk out. Yeah, so I've actually been talking to him a lot and I've got... Uh, one design that I prototyped already, um, it's a PMOD about uh, $50 bill of materials cost that sends out a signal from the FPGA, runs it through a two-port network of your choice, and then receives it back and digitizes it with, I think, a 12-bit vertical resolution and uh, 100 picosecond time resolution. It's the equivalent of 10 gigasamples per second. So it's good out to you know, at least probably a gigahertz or so of bandwidth, although I never actually characterized the rise time on it. And so that was just a comparator and a DAC, basically, and all the other intelligence was in the FPGA. And mm -hmm. so I have a next-generation design that I started working on probably two years ago. Um, I didn't have any EM simulation tool at the time, and so a lot of the layout is probably going to have to be redone once I've simulated it. I put it on ICE in part because I didn't have any simulation tools, and also in part because at the time I hadn't really started the probe project, and therefore a fast scope without a good probe is useless. Um, that so, project um, actually is called... going to that um, back to that question from DSP eight bit, then something like that could actually be quite a cheap way to characterize repetitive signals. Uh, yes, the only problem is there's not really a plug and play solution available to just buy or build right now. Um, so yeah. that's kind of where I was getting to with this project called Free Sample, which seems a perfect name for a free software sampling scope. Uh, I, there, there is a GitHub repo for it under uh, my GitHub. However, it it's kind of been abandoned for the last year and a half. Like I said, if you try to build it right now, the layout's not even done. So feel free to look at it, but don't try building it. <laughs> Okay. And so uh, this design uh, used a uh, TI deserializer to recover a clock from an incoming data stream. So you could do uh, sampling on, say, an 8B10B stream or something like that. Um, it also had a precision delay line, a TI PLL, and in theory should give you single picosecond horizontal resolution and I believe 16-bit vertical. And again, there'll be some noise and jitter, so some of that's gonna be empty resolution, but I wanted to make sure that I was pushing it as far as I could, so I provided the capability. So the time base has a 25 picosecond delay in the PLL and the three picosecond delay, and you can beat them against each other to get one picosecond resolution in theory. Um, cool. And so that design, uh, the front end was intended to have 10 gigahertz bandwidth. And so it was something you could use out to several gigabits per second data rates. And it would do clock recovery triggering and so on. So I never actually built it. Who knows if it'll work. The basic architecture is sound. I've prototyped it and proven it already. Um, the, the idea is to use a uh, 
cheap I2C DAC and a latching comparator to uh, directly digitize the uh, cumulative density or the cumulative distribution function of uh, a signal. So essentially what you're doing is at each point in time, at each voltage in your 2D iPatterner density plot, you take a whole bunch of measurements at each point, and these are one-bit measurements off a comparator with the clock swept to the appropriate phase. And so that gives you one bit of voltage is greater than or less than uh, this voltage at this time. And so by dividing that by the number the of samples, space. you divide that by the number of samples to get the probability of the signal being less than that voltage. Then you scan over the whole XY pattern, and that gives you a direct statistical measure, you're directly measuring the probability, essentially, of the signal being less than that voltage. That gives you the CDF of the signal. Then you take the partial derivative in the vertical CDF, axis. CDF, sorry, what's that? Uh, cumulative distribution function. Okay. So basically probability of F of X is less than X, or F of uh, T is less than X. And uh, But so, it's important to say that this is only good for repetitive signals, like a correct. signal. And if you correct. want to do protocol decoding, you have to do something completely different. Correct. However, you can use it for signal integrity measurements on protocol data, or it doesn't. the signal itself does not have to be exactly repeating because mm -hmm. you're measuring the statistical properties of the signal. And so if sometimes it's one and sometimes it's zero, it's fine because you're going to see both of them reasonably often. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, you take the, you measure the CDF directly, you take the partial derivative in the vertical axis, that gives you the PDF, which is the probability of the voltage equaling a given value at a given time. And guess what? That's an eye pattern. Okay, right. Yeah. So it's a, so it's a very yeah. uh, inexpensive way of getting this measurement compared to the classic sampling scopes use a sample and hold and a fast A to D and so on. And yeah. this design uses a comparator instead. So you don't yeah. actually even have an A to D converter in there. The downside of this architecture is you do have to take a lot more samples. You're looking at taking potentially thousands of samples per pixel. So mm -hmm. with, you know, a full HD resolution, iPattern, say, just for example, a 720p would be roughly um, a 1.25 gigabit per second, so 800 picosecond UI, 1600 pixels wide by, say, 700-ish A to D values high. Uh, you're looking at about roughly a megapixel worth of data times many thousands of samples per pixel to get a nice smooth rendering. So you're looking at... Mm -hmm giga samples of waveform data at, you know, maybe a few kilohertz sampling rates. So you're looking at minutes to hours of acquisition time for one eye pattern. But on the other mm -hmm. hand, it's also, I'm targeting about a thousand dollar bill of materials cost for a 10 gigahertz bandwidth scope. So yeah, Pretty these good. are the trade-offs you take. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's finish up by talking about um, GL Scope Client, because that's something that you've been doing a lot of work on recently, and you've um, got some videos on your channel about like showing off some demos. Mm -hmm. So is it, is it, what's it about? Like, oh, like the, because it seems like it's got a couple of uses, like at least for signal integrity, but also protocol decoding. So the ultimate goal is to be a one-stop shop for analysis of time domain, or mostly time domain waveforms. It has some frequency domain capabilities. You can view FFTs and so on with it as well. Uh, but it's meant to be a one-stop shop for analysis of, I'll just say, waveform data in general, and uh, also remote control of instruments. So either 
remote operation of uh, a instrument that also has a front panel user interface or full headless operation of something like uh, uh, PicoScope or uh, Digilent just sent me some of their analog discovery hardware that I'm going to be adding support for soon as well. Um, so any of those headless instruments and all of the open hardware scope projects that I'm working on are also going to be headless. They will be intended for the scope client to be the sole user interface. Uh, or more precisely, LibScope HAL will be the sole API. JLScope client is the supported interface, but the it, there is a fairly clean front-end, back-end separation. The intent was to make automated testing or potentially even a full custom third-party user interface an option talking directly to LibScope HAL and LibScope protocols. Uh, everything is permissively licensed. It's all three clause BSD. Um, interop with vendors was very much a goal. I would love if, for example, some of our protocol decodes ended up being shipped on scope firmware from a scope vendor. And we went with the permissive BSD license specifically to enable that. Um, I would love if, especially some of the smaller scope vendors that are more weak in the software department, if they would just ship a Linux distro and a touchscreen optimized version of GL Scope Client on the scope directly, that, that would be great. <laughs> Who knows if that's actually going to happen, but um, at this point, I'm actually talking to three different instrument vendors. Uh, two of them have already sent hardware for testing. Uh, Pico and Digilent have both sent scopes over for testing. So I've got um, a PicoScope 6000. I've got uh, the new Analog Discovery 3000, the older Analog Discovery and Digital Discovery. Um, we've actually been talking to uh, Siglent as well. Uh, they haven't sent over hardware because one of our contributors already has one, but they've given us a bunch of uh, unlocked codes for various software packages. Uh, they've enabled the MSO option and uh, they're looking at collaborating with us as far as getting access to additional hardware for testing and development. So a lot of the smaller instrument vendors are starting to realize the benefits of working with the community and having open source tooling available because a lot of the capabilities that Gelscope Client has, especially for more advanced signal processing, these are things these instrument vendors have wanted to have and didn't have the resources to develop in-house and we've got open tools to do it already. And so again, I, I'm not trying to necessarily kill proprietary scope firmware but it would it would not be an undesirable side effect <laughs> <laughs> so what what's the um what's the like the next um the next couple of goals that you're working on with gl scope clients um so uh, the kind of the roadmap right now so far it's really been kind of ad hoc scratch my itch development everybody has something they're working on they go and either add a driver for their scope or write a decode for the protocol they're working on today or something like that and so i would really like to be able to find some contributors or time in my schedule good luck on that uh to do more work on just core stuff and all the boring non-sexy things that make a tool useful so for example uh there's a couple of little annoying bugs like the red and blue channels on the iPattern are swapped on Windows right now. Uh, so the colors all look wrong compared to other platforms. Um, there's a few little tidbits like uh, time-based and trigger configuration aren't persisted in save files. Um, if your locale uses commas as a decimal separator instead of a period, the preferences file doesn't parse correctly. Little things like that that you know nobody's bothered to put in the effort to fix. And so a lot of these little things have to get taken care of. Uh, I would like to hit a 0.1 release this summer to fall uh, and kind of we haven't made an official 
goals for that release yet, but as a minimum, I want to have some kind of a packaged installation so that you can just go download a binary and install it. Right now, you have to pull everything from GitHub and grab a couple of different sub-modules and third-party dependencies, and it's a bit of a pain to set up. And so mm -hmm. if we had just a binary distribution that engineers who aren't necessarily software developers could just go and use, uh, improving the state of documentation, at least making sure all the basic features are documented, even if not all the protocol decodes and stuff are documented, at least having documentation for all the basic user interface features, uh, being reasonably sure that you know, there's no known showstopper crashes. The file format is at least stable enough that we know file form files created with this version will continue to work in future versions. And I've, I've I mean, even already, just because I have so much test data, I've tried to maintain compatibility with older version save files, but making a little bit of a more formal commitment to that um, is kind of what I would expect. You don't end up a with a different API every every release. <laughs> uh, well, um, so file format stability, yes. The uh, APIs are not at all stable. The 0.x series APIs will be changing. New functions will be added. You know, a driver made with an older version may not compile with a new version because there might be a pure virtual function you don't implement yet because it didn't exist in the previous release and so on. Um, so the 0.x series, one of the goals is to kind of pin down that API stability more and get at the point that by the time I make a 1.0 release, there will be some semblance of API stability where at least... I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be targeting binary compatibility anytime soon, but as a minimum, I want to ensure that a source code compatibility for a driver written for an older instrument will still build on newer versions, at least for, you know, the, the 1.x version series, maybe 2.0 will start making some breaking changes. Uh, but yeah, 1.0 is not going to happen this year for sure. I'm hoping to get 0.1 out this year, but it, it also really depends on how much support we can get from the community and manufacturers because a year ago, Gelscope client, I mean, okay, a year and a half ago, more like, uh, I think one person other than me had tried to compile it and, uh, the code still had hard coded references to files on my development machine and it was just totally not in a usable state and it's matured massively we've picked up uh, i think we're up to like 10 or 15 people have at least contributed some code whatsoever and we've got a couple somewhat active contributors now so if it continues picking up steam like this who knows where it's going to be in another year great so just as a um uh, the a final thing. Do you want to say a, a few words on your offer to the community about um, helping debug? Like, because we've just heard like it can be very expensive. You need expensive tools. You need expensive expensive software sometimes. And I know that you've very generously in the past helped people out with open source hardware projects if they need it. Yeah. So uh, basically, the idea is. Uh... Antikernel Labs is legally a business. I need to be able to, for example, pay taxes on my boards that I sell and so on. So I had to get a business license and register it as such and so on. My goal is not to make it something I can live on anytime soon. It's really my playground and something to work on in my spare time and so on. And so ultimately, kind of my goal is for it to run roughly at break even. I would like to be able to sell boards and potentially consulting or support services here and there in order to subsidize development of future projects and use that also to subsidize the cost of providing services to the community. Because again, I recognize that I have 
substantial budgets that the average hobbyist is not going to be able to afford. Uh, I mean, just looking at pictures I've tweeted in my lab, you can probably get an idea of uh, how much I spend on it in a year. And uh, it's, it's definitely well into the five digits. And so uh, that gives me a budget and capabilities that, again, are not necessarily going to be on par with a large corporation, but certainly beyond the means of the average private individual. And uh, so I do try to be aware of that and give back to the community as much as I can and uh, provide either pro bono or heavily discounted services for, for example, if somebody gives me Gerber's throwing that in the queue to do an EM simulation on it's basically just a matter of importing and throwing a couple of ports on it, maybe cropping out the region of interest or something. It doesn't really take that much of my time. And if I'm away at my day job anyway, I'm not sitting at my desk running simulations anyway. So if I don't have something in the queue, it doesn't really cost me anything to go take that software I've already paid for and use it more heavily. Um, and then uh, I don't think anybody's taken advantage of this uh, yet, but I am also uh, open to doing hands-on either testing, characterization, measurements, failure analysis type stuff. I've done a little bit of... Uh, like board cross sections for applied ion systems. For example, I did some cross sections of a failed capacitor for him um, and so on. Uh, and really, I, I kind of consider it a communist pricing model. So uh, pay what you can afford. I'll give you what I can. <laughs> And, uh, and you mentioned um, that when things open up a bit in in terms of the pandemic situation, then you might be looking at doing some face-to-face -face training as well. Yes. So um, actually, I'll just pick the camera up for a second and uh, look off that way. I've got a whole classroom space with uh, whiteboards and uh, there's no projector yet, but I've got the screen for where a projector is going to go and so on in here with seating for up to four or five students. And so I do plan on offering uh, in-person trainings. Um, my lab obviously will also be included as uh, part of that. I haven't worked out exact details. Um, and again, I'm not trying to make a living off of this. There are certain things where there's expensive consumables or components, something like that, that I'll at least, you know, I'll need to charge return shipping if you send a board to me and you want it back or, um, you know, cost of components from swapping parts or something like that. But for the most part, I'm trying to subsidize the cost of doing this out of sales of boards and so on and kind of get the point that it's running at a net neutral. Uh, and so, so yeah, was... I am looking at running in-house trainings and practice uh, sessions and my lab certainly massively beats the teaching labs when I was in the school also. <laughs> so how should people get in contact with you if they want to find out anything more about your tools or GeoScope client or about training or about your um, offering to the community? Uh, following my Twitter is probably a good start. Uh, Antikernel.net uh, is the website for the lab. Uh, sales at Antikernel.net is the email address to contact uh, stuff through there. Uh, that also will link to if you want to buy the probes or something along those lines. And again, I don't really have definite either timeframes or plans as far as uh, trainings go. And it'll really kind of be, if a couple of people in the area reach out to me and are all interested in learning advanced soldering, I'll go throw something together some weekend. <laughs> Great. Okay, well, thanks so much for your time, Andrew. It's been really good talking to you. And uh, thanks for sharing all uh, your great and deep technical knowledge on all of this um, high-speed signal integrity and measurement systems. It's been great. Thank you.